Well, good morning, and I guess Merry New Year to you as well. It's good to see you. Uh, thanks for being here today. Thank you, Matthew, for that offertory. I uh, hope you had a good Christmas, but I've got some weird news for you. This is the last Sunday of the decade. Is that not the weirdest thing? Next time we meet together as a church family, it'll be 2020, which sounds like some futuristic year from a science fiction movie, but it's actually going to happen, Lord willing, unless the Lord doesn't come back in the next seven days. Um, and, and I want you to think about the fact that things changed a lot the last 10 years. I mean, are you ready for the next 10 years of your life? Are you ready for the 20s? I don't know. Are you? That's what we're going to talk about today, because if you think back to 2009, if you can remember that far. It actually didn't seem that, that long ago, but it was actually 10 years ago that it was 2009. We were looking forward to a new decade then, and we had no idea what kinds of changes we would face in the coming 10 years. For instance, I think a lot of us were aware of smartphones 10 years ago, but most of us didn't have one. If we had a phone, it was a little flip phone or something we just, believe it or not, we just used to call people on. That's all. Now, almost everyone I know, from little kids in elementary school to the oldest people I know, they have smartphones and they know how to use them. And we have no idea, we had no idea 10 years ago how much these little devices would come to dominate our lives. Right now, I've got a, a stop, stopwatch function working on mine so I can know how long I'm preaching so I don't go over. I'm not going to tell you how long I preached, but that's, that's going on right now. So we didn't know 10 years ago how big social media would become. Ten years ago, people who were teenagers were into it, and we heard about it from them, but we didn't know that uh, over the next ten years, it would be grandparents that would be just posting things about themselves, broadcasting their lives for everyone to see. We didn't know that social media would become the dominant way that our political leaders would interact with us, and that's happened. The dominant way that news organizations get out the biggest stories, the breaking news now comes to us through tweets or, or through Facebook posts instead of through something on the radio or television. We didn't know, to say something a little darker, 10 years ago, we didn't know how many of us were going to experience flooding in our homes for the very first time, and some of us more than once over the past 10 years. We didn't know that anger and anxiety and depression would continue to spread and become pervasive in our society, even as we become more and more affluent, more and more wealthy. I mean, we've never had a more affluent group of people than Americans in 2019, and yet we're, we're so unhappy collectively. We didn't know, and this is really dark, that the average lifespan of people in our nation would actually go down in this past decade for the first time in our nation's history. It's always gone up until recently because of suicide, because of overdoses and things like that. On the good side, we didn't know, did you know this? Over the past 10 years, the global rate of extreme poverty actually declined for the first time in history. There are fewer people extremely poor than there have ever been in the history of the world. That's good news. Remember Al-Qaeda, 2009, back in 2009, we were worried about them and where were they going to show up and what we were going to do about them. Now we never hear about them anymore. That's good news. Something good has happened. We didn't know that the Astros would finally win a World Series. In 2009, if you'd have told me that, I'd, I'd have said, no way. Not only did they win a World Series, they've won 100 games three straight seasons. These are the golden years for us as Astros fans. We didn't know 10 years ago that the Houston Texans wouldn't come anywhere close to a Super Bowl, right? We could probably have guessed it. Someday when I die, I want six Houston Texans to be my pallbearers so they can let me down one last time. 
And no, I wouldn't say that if, if, uh, if J.J. Watt was sitting in the stands, in the, in the congregation. But uh, if he was, I hope he tithes. But anyway, um, so what's the next 10 years going to hold for us? We have no idea. It can be really anxiety-inducing to think that as much change as we experienced over the past 10 years, that rate of change is going to increase. Things are going to be exponentially more different then than they are now. Will we be riding in driverless cars pretty soon, by 2029, even sooner than that? Will our economy continue to be strong? Will we hit a recession? What, when will it happen? How long will it last? How will it affect us? We don't know. Will we find cures for diseases like Alzheimer's, cancer, ALS? Lord, I sure hope so. When will it happen? Will it be soon enough for people like me who are on the cusp of, of, that, of that age of life, stage of life? What big challenges will we face as a nation? We know they're going to come. Who will be our rivals? What will, who will be our allies? We don't know. On a church level, are we going to continue to see the influence of Christianity on society continue to decrease? Is ridicule, public ridicule of our faith going to increase? Are churches going to continue to struggle? Are some going to close? Are others going to have a hard time maintaining things? Um, are we, or, or instead, are we going to experience another great awakening like has happened several times in our nation's history where suddenly we see massive waves of people coming to faith? I sure hope so. Are we going to experience losses to our religious freedom? Are we going to see over the next 10 years churches lose their tax-exempt status? That would be a game changer for a whole lot of churches. It would, be, it would be hard. We couldn't go on doing things the way we've done before. Are there going to be more serious losses to religious liberty in our country? We don't know. What about you personally? I know over, your, over the past 10 years, your own life changed in many ways. What do the next 10 years hold health-wise, family-wise, financially? What challenges will you face? What big decisions will you have to make? What new directions will you head? We don't know. And I'm not trying to make you feel anxious, although I'm probably doing it. But worrying does no good. Only God knows the future. What we can do is get ourselves ready for an uncertain future. And that's what this message is about today. So we're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. If you haven't turned there already, turn there now. 2 Timothy 1, 1, 1 13 through 14. Paul wrote the letter of 2 Timothy as he was literally about to die. These, these are the last recorded words of the Apostle Paul. Paul is in prison, literally on death row. He's been in prison before. He wrote the letter to the Philippians from prison. It's one of the happiest documents you've ever read in your life. But 2 Timothy is different. In 2 Timothy, Paul knows he's not going to get out. He will never see freedom again this side of heaven. The axe is sharpened. He knows they're going to behead him soon. So he's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. As far as we know, Paul had no physical children. Timothy was the closest thing he had to a son. And he's asking him for some help. He's giving him advice. Mostly he's telling him, here's what you need to do to get ready for the future. Because think about it. Paul, more than any other person, was responsible for taking the gospel into the larger world. Before that, Christianity had been very much a localized phenomenon. Christianity was focused in Israel. Paul was the one, he and, and those who followed along with him, who took Christianity out into Asia, out into Europe. If you're from European heritage like I am, you need to thank God for Paul because your ancestors came to know Christ because of his movement. 
Not only that, Paul, more than any other person aside from Jesus himself, was the one who wrote down the truths of the gospel in such a way that we could understand them, memorize them, apply them to life. He's a mammoth figure, and yet he's about to die. What's what's life going to be like when he's gone? The whole generation of the apostles, the people, the men and women who knew Jesus personally, they're all about to go. And what will become of the church? Paul knows that the church is fragile, especially back then. The church is a, a minority in society. They don't have any money. They don't have any resources. They don't have buildings. They're mostly slaves. He knows that there are already movements starting in which people are taking the truth of the gospel and twisting them to suit their own agenda, adding their own little spin on Jesus' teaching so that it sort of sounds Christian, but it's not really the truth. Is that going to continue to happen? Is the church going to become some perverted version of what Christ envisioned? On the other hand, he knows that there are plenty of true believers who know the truth and who are faithful to it, who are just who just have a tendency to be small and petty and selfish, and so there's lots of arguing and fighting and splitting. Paul himself had a split from his best friend Barnabas at one point. It happens. Paul has got to be thinking to himself, is that the future of our movement, that we're going to implode because we can't get along? And so he's writing to Timothy because Timothy is the next generation of leaders. He represents that next generation who will have to carry the church forward. And he's saying, here's what you need to do to be ready for an uncertain future. And we can read his words and say, that's what I need to do to be ready for the next 10 years and whatever they hold. So let's read together verses 13 through 14. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So Paul had a lot of concerns on his mind. We read at the end of the story, at the end of 2 Timothy, that he's, he's upset because some of his friends who'd been faithful to him up till then had abandoned him at the last minute, left him all alone. Not only that, he's an old man, and he's old beyond his years because he's lived a hard life serving God in a hostile world. He writes and says, hey, Timothy, bring me the coat that I left at the city of Troas. Paul has got no coat, and it's starting to get cold. He says, please come before winter. Those are some of those poignant words written in all of Scripture. Make every effort to come before winter. I'm going to freeze to death if you don't show up with that coat. And yet, in spite of all of his other concerns, his main thing to Timothy is, God has given you a good deposit. That word deposit in in my Bible, which is the English Standard Version, is the word treasure in Greek. So imagine you're walking down a busy street and a rich guy gets out of a limo pulled up to the curb and hands you a briefcase and says, here, this is all my worldly funds. It's over a billion dollars. Take care of it. I'll see you in 10 years. Would you feel a slight sense of responsibility? I think so. Would you feel like I'm a target now? Who knows, who ha- who knows that I have this and who's going to come after me? Yeah, probably. What Paul is saying is Jesus has given you everything that's most important to him. He's given you the greatest treasure that has ever existed, and it's your responsibility to take care of it. The treasure he's talking about is not something that has a dollar sign in front of it. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the truth that sets people free. He's talking about the message of God's word that Christ came into the world to save anyone who wants salvation. That is our treasure. And it's been entrusted to us. And please understand, when Paul says guard it, he doesn't just mean, hey, hold on to it and don't let anybody steal it from you. What is the gospel supposed to do? It's supposed to change people's lives. He's saying, be a good manager of these resources. Take them to the world in such a way that they will hear. 
Use the gospel for its purpose. Don't waste it. The worst thing in the world we can do as Christians is bury it in a hole in the ground and say, okay, I'm just not going to do anything to mess this up because I'm not qualified. So how do we do that? How do we guard the good deposit that God has given us? That's what our life is all about. I'm going to stand judgment before God someday. I, I am fully aware that my soul is saved because Jesus died for me. I'm not worried about going to hell because He went to hell for me on the cross but I'm still going to have to give an accounting for my life. And a part of that accounting is going to be how I led you as a church. God's going to say, I gave you the opportunity to lead a great church. What did you do with that? Did you just stand up there and talk about yourself? Did you just tell jokes? Did you just try to make people like you? Or, or did you lead them to use the gospel well? He's going to ask all of us the same question. What did you do with the treasure that I gave you? Your soul was saved, and you were so happy. You got baptized. You were so overjoyed. What did you do with that treasure? What is the result of your life? So how do we overcome all the different things that are coming after us to steal that treasure and, and, and make it worthless in our lives? That's what this verse is about. These verses are about three things. Number one, we need the Word of God. That's our start. If we're going, if you want to be ready for the next 10 years of your life, you have to do it with the Word of God at the center of your life. And, and here's what I mean by that. Paul writes to Timothy and says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Remember the story of how Paul met Timothy? It's in the book of Acts. He met him in a village where he was preaching the gospel on one of his missionary journeys. And here's this young man, Timothy, the son of of Eunice and the grandson of Lois, or maybe I got that backwards, you can check on it. Um, but they were both Christian women. They had led Timothy to Christ. And now Paul comes along and says, I want this kid with me. He's got potential. And so Paul's been pouring into Timothy ever since, telling him the gospel, telling him the stories and the teachings of the Old Testament and the teachings of the apostles and the teachings of Jesus himself. Remember, those weren't yet written down. And Paul says, don't forget the things I've told you. Instead, follow the pattern of the words that I've taught you. You and I are so blessed because we have access to God's Word. We don't have to rely on someone to tell us what God's Word says. It's right here in this book. We can read it for ourselves. But how many of us waste that opportunity? You know, Lifeway uh, Christian Resources did a study last year and they found that out of all the things you can do as a Christian, all the things you, you were taught when you were a kid, go to church, uh, you know, give a tithe, Say your prayers. Be kind to others. Out of all the things you can do as a Christian, the number one thing that produces spiritual growth in believers is reading God's Word. That's not to say that the other things shouldn't be done. They should, but you've got to start with God's Word. And it only makes sense because this is our bread. This is our, our water. This is our food as believers in Christ. Can, can you imagine any world in which you could not eat or eat once a week like some people do when they come to church and still grow? and still be healthy and still thrive? Of course not. You need to feed your soul, and your soul is fed by the Word of God. This is why over the past year, we, we challenged you as a church to read the entire Bible. And some of you did for the very first time. Some of you did for the first time in a long time. Some of you tried and didn't accomplish it, and that's okay. I'm not asking you to read the whole Bible every year. That may be a, a practice that works for you, but that's, that's too much Scripture at one time for some people. It, it depends on how you're wired. 
For some of you, it may be best for you to, to read just a chapter a day or, or to read small sections that you can chew on. Some of you may prefer to have like a devotional thought of the day. So you, you may do better if you buy a devotional book. And so you read a little scripture, you read the thoughts of somebody else. You can use the book that I wrote that way if you want. I've got a few more copies. You can find it on Amazon. Some of you do better listening. Download an audio Bible and listen to a section of Scripture on your way to work or on your way to school. But make a plan right now. How are you going to feed your soul with the Word of God in the coming year? Paul, this is a theme for Paul. He, he says it over and over again in these words to Timothy in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. In 3, 14 through 17, he says, continue in the things that you have learned. From childhood, you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. All scripture is inspired by God so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In chapter 4, verse 2, it says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And you may say, well, Jeff, I'm not a preacher. And that's, that's fine. We don't need everybody to be an ordained vocational preacher. But we need everybody to be equipped to be able to teach the Word to somebody. Some of you are called to teach Bible studies or lead groups, lead life groups. Some of you, though, it's a matter of, I've got a friend who's got needs. I sure wish I knew what to tell him from God's Word. I've got kids that I'm trying to raise. I sure wish I knew how to tell them the truth of God's Word because they're going to hear it from me first. Every believer in Jesus needs to be equipped so that you can say to somebody who's struggling, hey, here's what the Bible says about that. Or I've got a word of encouragement for you, and it comes from this book in the Bible. Are you equipped that way? Here's something else. You've probably heard people say, I hear this a lot today, you know, Christians in America today don't, listen, don't live any differently than non-Christians they're just as likely to get divorced. They're just as likely to have uh, racist attitudes. They're just as likely to get addicted to porn. They're just as likely to, to mess up in a variety of ways. Um, and, and that's just the way life is. And you hear that. And that's sort of conventional wisdom. But has anybody actually done a study to see if it's true? Actually, yes. George Barna has been studying the church for decades. He did a study recently to find out if that's the case. And here's what he found. He said he found out it's not exactly true the way you've heard. So if you take people and you ask them, are you a Christian? And they say, yes, that group of people that says they're Christian, which is still a vast majority of America, that's true. They live, that group of people lives basically no differently than non-Christians. That much is true. But there's another group within that larger group. People who live with a biblical lifestyle or, or, or have a biblical worldview. And Barna has discovered this group of people by, by creating a 40-question test. So 40 questions that ask questions about attitudes, that ask questions about behaviors, that ask questions about beliefs based on Scripture. And he asks these Christians these 40 questions, and if they get 80% or above, he says, okay, that person has a biblical worldview. They have integrated God's Word into their life. So they are trying their best to live according to what they read here. And what he found was that group of people who live with a biblical worldview, actually live very, very different lives than the rest of us, than the rest of the world. They are much more likely to be generous with their money, helping out others, 
giving to charity, giving to their church. They're much more likely to be generous with their time, volunteering to help those less fortunate than them. They're much more likely to have healthy family relationships. Their marriages are stronger. Relationships with their kids, with their parents are stronger, with siblings, with friendships. They're more kind in general, and they're much more joyful. They are happier people. So literally, they practice what they preach. That's the good news. A biblical worldview changes the way you live. You integrate the Word of God into your life, you're going to be a better person. That's the good news. Now, here's the bad news. How many of that group of people who claim to be Christians have a biblical worldview? You want to take a guess, anybody? What percentage? Okay, I'll give it to you. 7% of Americans have a biblical worldview and 10% of Christians. You want to know why they say Christians don't live any different than the world? This is why. Only 10% of people who call themselves Christians have integrated the Word of God in their lives. And you say, okay, well, there's a lot of different denominations. What about people that really preach the Word and teach that we're supposed to meet Jesus in a personal way and, and, and accept Christ as our Savior and be transformed to have a born-again experience like the Word of God says? I bet the percentage is higher. And it is, but not as high as you would think. Among born-again Christians, only 23% have a biblical worldview. So that means there's a whole lot of people who could stand up and give a biblical testimony. Christ came into my life, saved my soul. I followed Him. I've been changed. But who actually live according to the Scriptures. Three out of four of us don't. That's scary. So pray for yourself. Pray that God would give you a hunger for His Word. Pray for the church itself. Pray for First Baptist, but the church at large, and say, Lord, give us a hunger for Your Word. We're being discipled by what we see on TV or the, on the internet. We're being discipled by the news source we follow. We're being discipled by our friends. We're not being discipled by Your Word, and that's why we're living the way we do. Second thing, we need the Word of God, but also if we want to be ready for the next 10 years, we need faith and love. Paul doesn't just say, follow the sound pattern of teaching that I give you. He said, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Why does he say that? Because you may not know this, but Paul was a Pharisee before he was a Jesus follower. And for all the bad things we can say about the Pharisees, they knew God's Word. They were strong believers in God's Word. Jesus comes along and he doesn't say, you Pharisees need to read the Bible more. He says, you need to love God and love your neighbors. What you're lacking is faith. Faith is trust in God. It's the, the willingness to say, okay, even though it's, even though it's risky, I'm going to give myself fully to God. I'm not going to hedge my bets. And love is the willingness to put others ahead of yourself. Love is not how you feel about someone. Love is what you do. So when you integrate faith and love into your life, you become the person God wants you to be. Jesus didn't just bring us doctrines and rules. We had plenty of that. He came and taught His disciples that God is the kind of God who wants you to call Him Father. And He used the Aramaic word Abba that, mean, that literally means Daddy. Jesus was saying God wants that kind of relationship with you. He doesn't just want to be feared and obeyed. He wants to be loved. And He wants you to love others that same way. And that means we've got to be more than just people who know the truth. More than just people who are uncompromising in our beliefs. We've got to be people who live lives that are magnetic. That draw others in. 
There's a little girl once who prayed, Lord, please make all the bad people good, and please make all the good people nice. Out of the mouths of babes, right? Mark Twain was supposed to have said when he was talking about a, a guy he knew who was very, very religious, he's a good person in the worst sense of the word. He's a very good person in the worst sense of the word. And I bet we can all think of Christians who live out that, that, that description. Good in the worst sense of the word. Being kind, compassionate, and loving is just as important as being right. And I'll prove it to you. When you read the Gospels, what do you see happening in Jesus' life? You see that the people in His time who were the most irreligious, the people who were the most rejected by good religious society, the kinds of people who had committed the kinds of sins that made them quote-unquote untouchable, the kinds of people who wouldn't get within a mile of a synagogue because they knew they wouldn't be welcome there, those were the people who were most attracted to Jesus. The people like you and me who were all buttoned up and straight-laced and who did all the right things and, and replaced all their divots and paid all their taxes and tithed 10%, those kinds of people rejected Jesus. It was the outlaws and the rebels and the, and the misfits who came to Him in droves, who came to Him not because He said, oh, you're fine the way you are, came to Him to be transformed. And let me tell you, I love this church, and in a couple of weeks we're going to talk about our vision for the next 10 years, and I'm excited about that, and I'm going to tell you all kinds of good things that are already going on. But let me tell you, you'll know this church is where it needs to be when this happens. When we look around and realize that more and more the people sitting in the pew next to us are not the buttoned-up, straight-laced type people. They're the people who last week were strung out on drugs. Last week were, were making bad decisions. Last week were messing up their lives. And now they've turned their hearts over to Christ. And they're on the road to redemption. And we're seeing them get baptized. And the demographic of our church changes because people aren't necessarily those who grew up making good choices. That's when we know we're the church God planted in downtown Conroe. We're the church He created us to be. Pray that we would become that kind of church, a church that exemplifies faith and love that draws people to Him. Third, and finally, but third and perhaps most important, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. If we're going to be ready for the next 10 years, we need the Word of God, we need to grow in faith and love, but we can't do it without God's Holy Spirit. Right before Paul says, guard the good deposit, he says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And I've got a clue for you, when that kind of language is used in the Bible. When it says, by the power of the Spirit do this, or by the power of God accomplish that, what he's really saying is, you better be praying. You know how I know that? Because the Holy Spirit of God is not a tool that you can pull out of your holster anytime you want and put it to work. You and I can't just say, okay, we're going to have church on Sunday, so let's, uh, let's have a big dose of the Holy Spirit. Let's just show up and do that. Holy Spirit of God, according to John 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, it, it comes and goes when it chooses. God's Holy Spirit is His Holy Spirit. He, we can't control Him. So the best we can do is say every day, Lord, I need You. I can't do this without You. Do you wake up every morning and do that? Do you wake up every morning and say, Lord, I don't know what today holds, but You do, so get me ready. Get me ready for the tough decisions I'm going to have to make. Get me ready for the conversations I'm going to have with people let me say the right things. Lord, get me ready for the obstacles I'm going to face. I know there's going to be some challenges. Lord, when, I, when there are opportunities in front of me to do something good, get me ready for those too. 
I know you pray. I mean, you're here this morning and you pray about different things. and, And I'm not trying to get you to stop praying for the things that are important to you. I'm saying, how often do you pray for God's power to get you ready for your day? And I'm asking you to do that not just for yourself, but for this church. I'm asking you to pray daily for First Baptist Conroe. If you're a member of this church, that's part of your responsibility. How should you pray for us? Well, let me just start with personally, pray for me. I love this church. I love being pastor of this church. This is literally my dream job. So what I'm about to say, do not interpret it as, oh, Jeff's struggling. He's having a hard time. I'm doing great. But there's a, literally a hundred different ways I could mess this up. And no, I'm not more important than you. We're all equal in the sight of God. But if this church is going to be what God called it to be, having a pastor who's messed it all up is a big millstone around your neck. So pray for me. Pray that I would not burn out. Pray that I would take care of my family. Pray that I would lead well. That I would listen to the Holy Spirit. Pray that I would have wisdom. That when I get up behind this pulpit, I am preaching nothing but the truth. Pray for our church staff because every single one of those men and women have the same concerns I just expressed to you. They want to get it right. They want to serve God well. They want to lead and and do a great job effectively in the name of Jesus. Pray that we would lead in such a way that we have courage to do what's right and wisdom to know what's right and, and the humility to get out of the way and let God shine through instead of promoting ourselves. Pray for the church at large. If you're part of a life group, How often do you pray for the leaders of your life group? That ought to be something you do on a regular basis because they've got quote-unquote real jobs and they're serving God. So the pressure is on them as well. And if you're not part of a life group, become part of one. Pray for this church that we would be faithful to the truth of God's Word and would not stray after the latest trends, the things that sound zippy and fun and exciting, but aren't really the truth that sets people free. Pray that there would be unity in God's family. There is unity right now, but it could be even greater. We could love each other more. Pray that that would happen and that nothing would disturb the bond that we have within this body of believers that is so precious and as precious as it is to you and me, it's even more to God Himself. Pray for the church worldwide. There are Christians in places like North Korea, China, Saudi Arabia, Iran, who are suffering for the gospel in ways you and I can't even imagine. Pray for them. Whenever you hear a news story, whenever you read about it, pray for them by name. Pray for them by country. Pray for the the church in the United States of America. We talk about revival often. What does that really mean? That means when the church starts representing Jesus again comes back to Him and makes Him number one again. Sheds themselves of their idols, their idols of of money and sex and power and politics and all the things that capture our thoughts and our attentions. And we start serving Him wholeheartedly again. That's what needs to happen. Are you praying for it? Pray for the power of God to fall upon us, to prepare us for the next 10 years because we can't do it without it. So let me just wrap up by saying this. When Paul was writing these words, the man on the throne of Rome was named Nero. You've probably heard of him. He was an absolute narcissist, a cruel dictator, one of the worst people who ever sat a throne, and he was the most powerful man in the world at the time. To make matters worse, this was the first time in the history of the church that the Roman Empire had decided to start persecuting Christians. 
Up till then, they'd face persecution from fellow Jews or from Gentiles in the various cities, just localized things, just interpersonal conflicts. But now the most powerful government on earth had decided, let's rid the world of Christians. That's bad news. Paul, every day, would hear stories and would see for himself Christians being burned at the stake to light the streets of Rome. This was going on as Paul wrote these words. And yet when you read 2 Timothy, you don't see one single note of discouragement or despair or pessimism or self-pity. Paul is confident. He knows good things are coming. Why? Is he just an unstoppable optimist? No. No, Paul was confident because he had seen the worst thing that had ever happened in human history. When you and me took the greatest gift that has ever been given to humanity, God in human flesh, and nailed Him naked to a cross. That was the darkest moment in human history. And Paul said, at that moment, the greatest victory in the history of the world was being won. See, that's what God does with the worst the enemy can throw at Him. And so Paul said, Nero's nothing. Persecution is a piece of cake for God. We're going to be good. Three days later, by the way, Jesus rose again. I don't know if you know that part of the story. But he walked out of that grave and essentially said, you don't know the final score. I've always got this. So Paul was confident. And you and I can be too. No, I don't know what's going to happen over the next 10 years. I don't know if I'm going to live the next 10 years. Neither do you. But we know this. We know that good will win over evil. We know that love will conquer hate. We know that Christ will reign over a fully redeemed world at some point, maybe the next 10 years. And we know that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be safe. 